0: Dramatic or like, sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero.
1: The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival.
2: You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Yes, good evening and welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse 3RRR's weekly inquiry into ecology, energy and economics. Uh, That's better, I can hear myself with the thing plugged in. Uh, What you're listening to this evening is actually a trip from the past. We are doing a pre-recorded interview with a uh, wonderful guest who I'll introduce in a minute. The we is myself, Bushy and Sarah Coles.
1: Hello, Bushy. How you doing,
2: Colsey. I'm great. How do you do? Very well. We've been reading quite an opus, haven't we?
1: It's um, the it's so heavy that it's hard to read when you're in bed, and I dropped it on my face. <laughs> so I've got a bruise.
2: <laughs> oh, good. From
1: like chapter twelve. So there's
2: casualties. There's casualties. Yeah. I'd also like to thank Rachel, who's our panel beater on uh, this show this evening. Ah, uh, now Charles Massey. He gained a Bachelor of Science in the 1970s before returning to the family farm near Cooma in the Snowy Mountains. He's been farming ever since, and is well regarded in sheep circles for breeding merinos. He's written several books, including 2011's Breaking the Sheep's Back. Uh, and in 2009, Charles Massey returned to the ANU to complete a PhD in human ecology. His latest book is Call of the Reed Warbler and he explores regenerative agriculture, an approach to farming that rebuilds topsoil, increases biodiversity and importantly for Australia, resurrects eroded land and combats climate change. Welcome to the show, Charles Massey. Uh, Great to be here, Bushy and Sarah. Thank you. No problems. It's a very easy thing for people who live in cities and urban environments to lay criticism upon uh, modern farmers. When we hear about topsoil loss and erosion, we hear about dry rivers and land clearing uh, with little or no first-hand experience of actually producing food. Uh, It is another thing altogether when a multi-generation farmer takes direct aim at his peers, their methods and indeed the very foundation of our modern civilization. But like many farmers, you've made some mistakes, uh, and you, but you've learnt from them um, in very dramatic ways and undertaken nothing short of a radical transformation in your thinking and your approach. Can you take us back to, uh, to your story, Charles, and how you came to be sitting here today? Yes, thanks, Bushy. I, I guess, uh, for the sake of the
0: listener, I'm in my mid-60s, so I've had quite a, a life journey, including making a lot of the mistakes you can make in agriculture. I grew up on a farm, and only child, um, and influenced very early on by a primary school teacher, which led to a great love of birds and wildlife. And so uh, I then set off to uni right in those halcyon days of the early 70s with big issues like Lake Pedder and Franklin River, and so I was passionate about that sort of stuff, doing zoology and and a new course in uh, holistic thinking called human ecology, the first one in Australia, really. But at the age of 22, my father had a heart attack, and i decided... I'd go back and take over the family farm. And being an only child, and um, just because you grew up on a farm doesn't mean you know anything about managing a farm. Right. So I landed there uh, f- fresh and uh, decided I'd better ask what I thought was the best operators and thinkers around, whether it was Best Farmers or Department of Ag or CSIRO. So in, in uh, condensed Version. I became a very good industrial farmer and, and proceeded to apply the sort of modern uh, thinking and practices and um, that led to some pretty big mistakes.
2: Mm. You talk a lot in the book about the difference between the mechanical mind um, and the organic mind. Uh, at this time you were very much the mechanical mind. Tell me some of the practices that were considered best for industry and best for farming and, and indeed just seemed to be ingrained at the time. Well, in those days, we didn't have um, the modern herbicides which
0: allowed you to control weeds without ploughing the hell out of country. So I, uh, I thought that uh, I had to grow a monoculture or a near monoculture of pasture to raise sheep and cattle. So I'd assiduously plough paddocks and then um, sow them with monocultures, which I now realise did a lot of damage to the healthy soil and etc. cetera. And uh, one particular experience was... Um, I ploughed a sandy paddock that was on a slope, but as I drove home that night, I thought to myself, "Gee, I hope we don't get a big storm." But of course, we got a big storm, and I spent half a day shovelling um, soil off fences and stuff, and could have lost a thousand years of topsoil. So, and the other big one I made, uh, the other major mistake, which is really one of the prime destroyers of Australia's ecosystems, was uh, I just left sheep in a paddock and they just continually grazed and grazed. It's called set stocking. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't realise and the early settlers and and many today don't realise that if you do that the sheep come back and eat the sweetest grasses which are usually your best and most important deep-rooted perennials and forbs and they eventually run out of energy and die and and so you simplify an ecosystem and I tell a story in the book where an early, uh, one of the first settlers across Bass Strait uh, in the 1830s into Victoria, it only took him 15 years to totally destroy a landscape because he didn't understand how our ecology worked and the animals ate the heart out of the country.
2: Indeed.
1: And so um, later on in life, you did a PhD in human ecology. So you farmed for a long time and then you went back and did that. So what what is human ecology?
0: Th- that's right. Uh, the steps in that process was that after I'd been farming for a while, because of my science training, I guess, and more holistic thinking... In a very conservative industry, which is merino breeding, I knew scientists in molecular genetics and biology and and I could see that there was knowledge there that we could breed quite a new type of sheep, which was animal welfare friendly. You didn't have to uh, mules the skin off them for blowfly protection and and they didn't get fly strike and those sort of things. Yeah. And so by that stage I probably had 200 clients across six states and I was travelling 70,000 k's a year I was seeing a lot of degraded landscapes, but a lot of the clients that were adopting that new thinking in breeding were also adopting this new form of ecological regenerative agriculture, and that really got me thinking. You know, how how did they made this one hundred and eighty degree shift? So that's what got me back to do a PhD in the late eighties, in in the late eighties, not my late eighties. <laughs> Back at university, I went back to where I'd been at ANU because the issue was sort of holistic. So human ecology was, is a way of looking at human and ecological issues through the full spectrum across all the disciplines. So it's not narrow reductionist scientific, it's very much holistic accounts for the social as well as the uh, environmental.
2: Yeah. Mm. I think it's, it's probably fair to say as well, regenerative farming also uh, it takes a very different um, economic approach. And uh, I'm not... Quite often I hear people talk about a zero-growth model in regenerative farming. Is that um, something that generally occurs? I mean, do you, do you grow to a point and then realise that you've got the balance right? Is that a blanket rule or more just you know, context by context?
0: I think it's context by context, but what you're getting at, Bushy, I think is right. It's, it's interesting, as I tell in the stories in the book, people who make the shift... What I'll go back a step. What I did in my PhD was interview 80 leading farmers across Australia who'd done this transformative shift. I was analysing their language, their recorded interviews, and uh, in 60% of the cases, they'd made the shift because they'd had some sort of major life crisis that had cracked their mind open. Mm-hmm. A guy called Colin Sice had been burned in a bushfire. Others had a marriage break-up. Some were poisoned by chemicals. A major drought, the 80s drought was another one. And um, and the other forty percent had had a sort of, if you like, a series of little destabilizations, and so that's really what took me back. And um, so some of them decided to shift because of their reading and what they'd seen, and sometimes it was just, it was then strongly driven by ethics and morals, and other occasions those came in later. But ultimately, the leading regenerative farmers. The, the reductionist, um, economic rationalist model that profits everything isn't their prime driver. It's, it's more we want to regenerate earth for family, human health, for the sake of the ecology. Mm. And in many cases, a profit comes with it. Yep. But uh, it, it's this economic rationalist driver isn't the main driver in those sort of farmers.
1: Mm. Um, let's talk about the book, Call of the Reed Warbler. What's the story behind the title?
0: That, that's um that came out of it ironically came out of my thesis because one of the things i had to look at if i was going to analyze the language of farmers to see what made them different was the power and this is looking at modern cognitive psychology etc the power of metaphor in our thinking we're hardwired for it it came in one of our major steps of evolution that allowed us to be symbolic thinkers if you like and so I'm aware of that in, 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 the, in the back of my mind. One of the um, farmers I interviewed had just regenerated his valley and his creek through ad- adapting some of Peter Andrews' work. So when we drove out to look at his creek, we went past his neighbour who was set-stocking and flogging the hell out of country and it was bare and the creek wasn't running and there was salt. And then we came to this farmer's valley which was green and, and the creek was running and um, general feeling of health and... While we were chatting down by the creek, um, water birds must have brought in a small patch of reeds. And in the midst of our conversation, this reed warbler sang out of the, of the reeds. And uh, it's probably the first time in 140, 50 years a reed warbler had come back to that valley. And I thought, wow, what a metaphor for us regenerating Australia's landscapes across the whole spectrum.
1: Yeah, fantastic.
2: Well, in the book, in Call of the Reed Warbler, you explain that what is central to gaining ecological literacy and thereby enabling landscape regeneration is that all the different forms of regenerative agriculture have four essential ecosystem processes at their heart um we'll get to those but it's a term that we use a bit on the show is ecological literacy what what do you mean by that look that's a really key question and it's really what drove the shape of the book
0: because the uh the heart of the book the second part is all about what I define as the five landscape functions. So, as we all know, the word literacy means an ability to read or interpret. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know from, from my personal experience that I could look at a landscape, and compared to what knowledge came later, I, I couldn't read whether it was healthy or real or what was wrong with it. And so, when I did go back to uni, um, I sat through another soil course because you're allowed to do that as a PhD. You can sit in on undergrad stuff, and. It was the same as I'd done 40 years ago. It was physics and chemistry and nothing about biology. And, and quite frankly, after 15 minutes, my eyes glazed over, and, you know. And I put me, myself in the shoes of uh, farming friends and my clients and stuff, and, and many of them not with tertiary education, and I can imagine them eyes glazing over in the same period. So I realised I needed, and this is for both urban and, uh, and rural people alike, that we needed a sort of hands-on, easily graspable model of of how landscapes function and are they healthy or not, you know, whether it's your backyard or or a valley or an ecosystem. And so I adapted the first four biophysical uh, elements from a guy called Alan Savory, who I think you've covered in this program, who Mm. evolved out of Africa the uh, broad-scale ecological grazing. And uh, so that's the solar energy system which drives everything. And then you've got your water cycle and your soil mineral and then... um, what I call dynamic ecosystems and biodiversity component, but what was missing, and, and that's really the biggie, is um, as one farmer said, that square foot of real estate between our ears is the human social. It's our belief systems and our paradigms, and having yeah. been inculcated earlier on in uh, an industrial paradigm, and then made the shift. And the book was about the shifts. It's it's the uh, the critical fifth function and um so the book really is that the key part of the, uh, the central part of the book is through lots of stories describing what I mean in non-technical stuff and examples of how farmers have regenerated it. So um, it gives us a, uh, both lay reader, urban person and, mm-hmm. and farmers are, 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 you know, a model that they can immediately grasp and hopefully start to read a landscape you know, whenever you travel through them.
2: Yep.
1: Um, I think we should talk a little bit about the solar energy function and recap on who who is Alan Savory. Yeah, and I mean, how did he change grazing?
0: Yes, well, as we all know, the, the source of all life on Earth is our sun, and uh, and the way it's translated into energy for uh, we humans and and the whole ecosystems is through plants. So. The analogy I use in my lectures to students and others is uh, a nice picture of plants with solar panels on them, which is what chloroplasts are. And so the the plants grab that and then they convert that energy into sugars, which come out through the... uh, Well, both in the leaves, obviously, but through the roots, which drives all the healthy soil microbiology and the other organisms. And essentially, um, it's that energy via plants that drives our entire civilization, whether it's our use of stored solar energy fossil fuels or, or contemporary solar energy so that, that's the basis of the solar energy cycle and um alan savoury was uh, if you think about grasslands they cover something like 30 percent of the earth's surface so they're a major part of, of uh, the non-ice landscape on earth and alan savoury worked out he was an ecologist in zimbabwe what was um then rhodesia and he was a wildlife uh, ecologist so he spent a lot of time watching the big animal herds and then he became involved in uh, the Zimbabwean civil war and and was actually the founder of one of the crack guerrilla anti-guerrilla units called the Sulu Scouts and where they had to go barefoot without food without lights for two weeks on end and he noticed that because he went barefoot that where those big herds had traversed the landscapes was actually, and we're talking about millions of animals, was actually the healthiest grasslands he'd ever seen. And he asked himself, how can you have all this huge number of animals not doing damage? And they were driven by predators, which meant that they'd come through, graze dung and urine, the, the, uh, the landscape, and then move on. And, the, and then they wouldn't come back for maybe six months. So the, he eventually figured out that the secret was as opposed to what i was talking about earlier the set stocking the the plants they were fertilized and dunged and eaten down and so the roots died up from that initial grazing to feed the soil bugs but then they had rest and recovery time over a long period and he thought how can i adapt that to human management because that has to be the secret to capturing all the solar energy on plants to drive the whole ecosystem and so over decades he've, he's evolved a human driven part of it adapted from the military sandhurst and things how we can mimic the big herds but obviously not the millions yeah and through paddock subdivision keep them moving so you get that rest and the dunging and the urine etc and um when, when it's well managed in australia the results are just like africa they're quite remarkable the uh, ecosystems wake up and um one of the farmers that i gave an example of in 20 years, he went from running 8,000 sheep to 22,000, and he's doing it with greater resilience. Huge biodiversity has come, healthier soils, the whole thing. So, it, it's, it, that's where the, really the idea of regenerative agriculture comes from. It's, it enables farmers to actually improve, regenerate, renew uh, landscape functions.
1: Do you farm bare feet now?
0: <laughs> um, no, I'm I probably too soft soled. <laughs> yeah. But um, you can certainly feel where you, when you've managed ecologically, you go for a walk, you can feel the ground becoming you softer and softer. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You're listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R. We are we're joined in the studio by Charles Massey, author of Call of the Reed Warbler, A New Agriculture, A New Earth. Our next thing we want to ask you about Charles is Peter Andrews. What is he doing?
0: Right. Well, that comes under the section of um, the other critical one of the other critical four biogeochemical sort of systems or landscape functions which is the water cycle which is more than relevant in, in this mm-hmm. continent let alone what's happening around the world. So I tell a, a, a few stories around this, one of them obviously is P. A. Yeomans who did the key line through a, a practitioner in Western Australia but then I deal with Peter Andrews because um, in the last sort of 20, 30 years, he's undoubtedly uh, one of the um, people that's thought outside the box. And uh, I think his contribution... I I don't necessarily agree with some interpretations that what he's advocating applies to 100% of our landscapes. I think it applies to where there's running water, which might be only 5% or a bit more. But nevertheless, he was able to look at the Australian landscape through completely fresh eyes and realise our European view of rivers and creeks was uh, not how this extraordinarily ancient landscape worked, which, uh, yes, we had a few big rivers, but uh, most of us today are used to seeing incised creeks, etc. And, and that's not what it was in the past. It was what he calls chains of ponds and big soakages, so without going into too much technical detail, but it's quite complex that uh, uh, the Australian landscape outside the big rivers was uh, had a unique co-evolved way of capturing water in valleys and holding it and quite often the waterways were higher than the lateral sides of the creek so the flood would come down the reeds etc would capture the water uh, and then laterally disperse it through sort of sand arteries and stuff and he he gained this by travelling half a million kilometres across Australian landscapes and looking at Aboriginal papers paintings i mean uh, uh, some of which whether it's from uh, men of high degree or whatever but that it's an aerial view yeah. of 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 a landscape which showed chains upon shapes and um and so he then went about developing a technique of trying to recreate that by slowing down the speed of water putting impediments in the water course to trap the water instead of it escaping all the time and uh it, it, it's what i've seen it and that's where the title of the book comes from was one example when well applied it does work but as i say it's not necessarily a solution to the whole landscapes things like what we just discussed holistic grazing uh regenerating the uh, the solar cycle primarily to start with uh, has wider application and and i should say at this point that while we might talk about these four biophysical, biogeochemical functions all of them are tightly interrelated. You can't either degrade or enhance one without all the others being affected. So
2: everything works together in, uh, in collaboration. Well, Peter Andrews is one of many people that you refer to as a water dreamer. Um, I think farmers in general you call water dreamers. And salinity seems to be one of the more wicked ailments um, on his land that he was able to repair. So could you possibly expand a bit on some of those methods that he undertook to restore it because they weren't always popular with the neighbours and people down the line but they also, at the same time as they were working they were really confounding you know, the scientists and a lot of other experts it wasn't until down the track that the due credit was given to him
0: Yes, no, you're quite right I adopted the uh, title Water Dreamers from, I think it was Michael Cathcart wrote a book about sort of early explorers chasing inland rivers and, and lakes and all that yeah. sort of stuff and it's it's been a theme of, um, of Europeans in Australia searching for something that doesn't exist, like the big rivers or the mountain chains in the centre. Uh, if you go back a step, the, one of the reasons why Australian ecosystems collapse so quickly is that they function and are composed quite differently to w- where European agriculture and early Europeans came from. I mean, we're talking about northwestern Europe, and then later uh, northeastern United States. You're talking about very young landscape some of them only post-glacial you know less than 12,000 years so chock full of nutrients dark soil humid atmosphere uh, humid soils and um, the northern european agricultural techniques with big ploughs were adapted to that come to australia this dry desiccated continent a those things didn't work but the other side is that two-thirds of australia is one of the most ancient continents in the world up to 3.8 billion so we're long periods of leaching of those nutrients. Um, the centre of the continent is dry. There's no big mountains, no big rivers, really. Uh, and underneath it all, because of that ancient process, there's a lot of underlying salt. So you've, you've got to handle this landscape with kids, kid gloves. And uh, and the, the other critical factor is, because of the nutrients like phosphorus, etc., are so scarce, we have these extraordinary co-evolved systems between microorganisms and plants and and other creatures to recycle and collaborate in a symbiotic or what's called mutualistic fashion to recycle between themselves these scarce nutrients. And so when Australian farmers in in general, early settlers, and then even in the 20th century at the behest of departments of ag, they cleared trees to, to crop, the trees were pumping Um, water which is what trees do which kept the water table low but once uh, the trees went the water table rose and it picked up all that salt Mm -hmm. and now if you drive through parts of western australia you've got millions of acres of what they call white cancer Mm -hmm. and it's still growing and peter andrews um, did as i read it did two things he uh he addressed the solution which um, other innovators do which is that you've while you're trapping fresh water in your landscape, you're also putting in trees and, and other, other um, water pumps, if you like, mm. to distribute it. But he also recognised it wasn't just as simple as that. Uh, it, there's a lot of soil science and physics and chemistry. He saw that a healthy landscape had a, a lens over the top of fresh water. fresh water lens. Yeah. Yep. And that, that was a major insight and, and soil scientists like Christine Jones and others are now coming to terms that... You know this is a valid insight and uh it's not just simple you know chemistry and biophysics as, as some of the people thought
1: um the next thing that i want you to talk about is what is cole size up to he's doing something called farming without farming
0: yes <laughs> uh great australian innovators he, he and another guy called bruce maynard and uh, not far out not far away from him have have come up with some remarkable new cropping systems uh, which involve all the uh, landscape functions but essentially i mean the interesting point is you don't get radical innovation in the rich moist black soils of the darling downs or something it it comes when you're uh, you're under enormous pressure and you're forced to innovate And, and coal uh, he lives uh, in the central western New South Wales near an old gold mining town called Golgol. And uh, one day, a uh, bushfire came over the hill and completely destroyed everything he owned house, yard, sheep, everything. And uh, he, he, he was burned himself, lay in hospital for a few weeks, which he had time to think, and he realised he had to get his farm going without any cash at all. And uh, over a few beers with a mate, he's he, he realised what hadn't been lost was some of his native pastures, um, native grasses. Uh, one type of which, uh, commonly known as red grass, is what's is called it by botanists a uh, uh, carbon-four seed plant grass, which is a grass that is summer active and goes dormant through the winter. Yeah. And with no money to um, fertilise or plough or or um, use the new direct till technology, he said, "Well." These grasses are going to going dormant now, uh, which is the time that they normally sow in the autumn. Let's just drill the grain in because the new crops and canolas by that stage were, were suitable for animals to graze. So let's drill the grain in, cereal or whatever he was using, wheat and oats, and using that savoury holistic grazing technique to stimulate the ecology, let's uh, graze these... Uh, Commercial crops, which actually helps them, it stools them and increases plant and soil behaviour. Then, when it's time for harvest, late spring, these C4 grasses are just waking up. We then take the grain off, and suddenly we've got all this summer green feed underneath. And so, that through that combination of technologies and turning the tap off on most of his fertiliser and chemical, he evolved a new type of Farming in native grasslands, and then about eighty ks away, um, uh, another innovative farmer under a similar challenge situation um, decided to use slightly different tillage technology, but did exactly the same. He drilled his cereals and others straight into the native grasses and, and now they they're harvesting grain off native grasslands that are still alive they haven't been plowed and destroyed, and the soil hasn't been destroyed in the process and, and the uh, or else they haven't been um, weed-controlled with a lot of chemical. And uh, this other farmer, Bruce Maynard, actually is now promulgating his system, uh, initially called no-kill cropping, but now he calls it uh, uh, grassland grains. And Colin Sice calls his system pasture cropping. So they're world world breakthroughs, and uh, as Bushy and I were talking before, there's been a lot of research effort around the world, uh, the Land Institute in America, the most foremost, to try and breed grains from perennial grasses, because all the big commercial crops in the world of, of our cereal grains, etc., are actually annual grasses. And their survival strategy is to produce lots of seed, which they then drop and they uh, die at the end of summer, and then um, that seed germinates for the next crop. Perennial grasses are usually deep-rooted, they have complex relationships with the soil bugs, and there's been a lot of work trying to breed a perennial grain but it's, you're working against nature a bit and it's been very slow both in, the, in America and Russia and China and Australia but uh, in the meantime these Australian innovators have come in with this uh, uh, grassland approach.
2: Well, that, that deep, uh, deep-rooted perennial cropping speaks a lot to um, the, that soil mineral cycle that you discuss in the book, that's that third tenet. Um, speak to that idea of you know, inoculating biologically alive and healthy soils.
0: Yeah, this, this is a critical one, again interrelated with the others, the soil mineral cycle, because when um, the Big Bang occurred over 13 billion years ago, the 90-odd minerals and nutrients that we have in the earth were formed then. And so that some of them are critical ones, you know, copper, iron, manganese, magnesium, selenium. And the critical factor here, and this relates to urban food, uh, all our food and, and healthy nutrient food, is that if you have a biologically active, healthy soil, it, it's your soil bugs, particularly both bacteria and, um, and, and your fungus, mm-hmm. root fungus, which go out and source the nutrients in exchange for the plants giving them sugars. Mm-hmm. You start spraying and fertilising, you shut down all those guys hunting for you and you end up with drug addict plants that get a limited range of nutrients you're giving them in the fertiliser. So the implications of a healthy mineral cycle through this biologically active soil is huge for human health because a lot of the modern diseases come because we're not getting that full range of nutrients.
2: Mm. And that, that particular aspect there is very applicable. I mean, probably water cells and... and uh uh, certainly the whole the whole gamut applies to the backyard urban farmer but it, it's very applicable for the backyard gardener around Melbourne to possibly be the recipient of some very dead soils in the backyard especially the last sort of 30 or 40 years where more and more of those uh, synthetic chemicals and fertilisers have been available off the shelf uh, and people that are struggling to grow food at home really need to reactivate those suburban soils too, don't they?
0: Yeah,
2: absolutely critical. Uh, my
0: youngest daughter works in the... Uh sort of sustainable food, urban garden area in uh, in Melbourne. Mm. So I'm aware that it's probably at the forefront of, of Australia in uh, ecologically uh, active agricult- urban agriculture and healthy food. But um, yes, it absolutely applies either in the paddock out on farms and, and certainly in the backyard, that if you can get uh, humus, compost going into healthy soils, chucking away your chemicals and especially your mm. poisons and insecticides and herbicides, you'll reactivate that healthy soil and get those bugs working for you and and building nutrient density into your food, which is
2: the key to our health. Mm. It does seem to me, um, in some ways, maybe a more scalable and and easier thing to do in the city where we have such a a vast input from all over the world of different fruits, vegetables, all those sorts of things, and inevitably there's a waste stream out of that that um, is probably quite hard to disperse over several hundred or thousand acres. But if you're a backyard gardener, and you're not composting or using vermiculture or something like that, you're actually really letting a, a free and very valuable resource slip through your fingers. Absolutely spot on. It's that
0: backyard compost heap where all your waste goes, both mm-hmm. out of the kitchen and when you're harvesting your food or your lawn clippings or when you're trimming your hedges. It's the key to getting that those soil bugs, uh, your microbiology and wor- earthworms and all those other useful what they call ecosystem engineers into a healthy compost put it on your garden for the next year, mm. and you've got the whole health cycle building actively and, and human health and
2: your whole family benefits tenfold. Indeed. Know. So stop putting out your green bins, people. Put it in the garden.
1: I wanted to just t- briefly touch on one of my favourite parts of the book, which is in the soil mineral cycle section. And, um, Charles, you were writing about when you are a little kid and you are in the back of the car coming home from Christmas and your one of your older cousins had married a biodynamic farmer... And the practice was quite new in Australia And you write The way my stepmother and father discussed this bloke You would think he consorted with the devil And cavorted with nymphs and goblins As they danced around a fire under the moon Um, So where are you at now with biodynamic farming?
0: Well, um, you're quite right Uh, Biodynamics really didn't get going until uh, after the Second World War And... uh, uh, that was exactly as I remember. I might have been six or seven, I think, so and this guy looked differently uh, he 's a lovely fellow, as I later found out, but it was the uh, nymphs and the goblins <laughs> <laughs> so that was you 'd think it was some sort of magic voodoo stuff uh, was the way it was portrayed by traditional farming and and but it's since having studied what um, Steiner did in evolving biodynamics and good friends of mine who I feature in the book just down the road, who did come from Germany, where it evolved, it is basically. V- um, OK, there's a few elements that might be a bit way out for some to do with energies and other things, but essentially Steiner really laid down the framework of biodynamics in 1924, a series of lectures, and that was well before the developments in microscopes and modern microscopy and, and um, uh, microbiology, and so he intuitively already realised that the secret to healthy soil and mineral cycling etc and and nutrient density in food was a healthy biological soil much of which was microscopic and teeming by the billions but which we couldn't see and and so a lot of his work was focused on enhancing through the special preparations he made from humus etc with uh, zillions of these creatures to spread them over his paddock to sort of if you like energize and, and recharge them so that's that that was typical of what i'm talking about later in the um the human social the attitude worldview paradigm issue between something really radical and new and the old tried and tested methods and uh in many ways that sums the gulf that farmers have to shift quite often to a new regenerative approach
2: Mm. Indeed. well that the the biodynamic leads us to the fourth functional component of landscape and the book is, is broken up in these and And you talk about the importance of dynamic ecosystems as the maximum diversity and health of integrated ecosystems at all levels. Let's speak to that a bit.
0: Yeah, and it quite rightly is on a level with the other three um, biogeochemical systems. And uh, we've found to our cost, uh, as industrial agriculture uh, postulates efficiency and particularly monocultures, Mm -hmm. that... uh, There's a great paradox in industrial ag. The more we spray weedicides and insecticides, the more problems we create. So the stronger you've got to put on the next lot of chemicals and the more chemicals you've got to put on and you get into this endless round and no one's worked out what's going on because um, the big multinationals who drive this whole system, it's in their interest to keep (laughs) flogging the product. But we know that once you start pulling the rugs out from a complex system... You lose your disease control, your your, your uh, pest control, operatives, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the diversity, of, particularly in Australia, these long co-evolved systems that have taken millions of years. Um, you can't simplify them without paying a cost. And a, and a classic example is at home. <clears throat> when we were under traditional management, every four or five years we'd get cleaned out by wingless grasshopper plague yep. regularly. So we had an instant drought every five, six years. My father told me about it starting in the 20s. They'd even eat the green paint off veranda posts and stuff.
2: <laughs> Gee.
0: And, it, and it wasn't until I started to get complex complexity and, and dynamic ecosystems in by, first of all, through our holistic grazing, which built up diversity in, in the paddocks and, and you had your spiders and everything else coming in your grasslands, toward. but we planted uh, lots of shrubs and trees. We've probably put in 40,000 now and I've bred seed to get the old shrubs and stuff back in that have been lost and so you're getting your predatory insects your parasitic wasps and your birds we haven't had a wingless grasshopper attack now in 30 years so i I couldn't put a dollar value on just enhancing that function and that function can't work without a good solar energy cycle driving it without a good water cycle from deeper roots and more absorbent soils and with that, you saw minerals feeding it bugs, so it's all interrelated, really. Mm.
2: They, it seems, I was just going to say, it seems like it's both the cause and the effect. Once you start to increase the dynamic range of life, it both assists in uh, the regeneration of that land as well as being the effect of the regeneration of that land or in
0: one fell swoop. That's right. It's, it's sort of push-me-pull-you thing. It's yeah. uh, absolutely spot-on, yeah. Awesome.
1: Yep. I think that this would be a good point to get, you to read about robert and caroline rex from your book about some farmers in wa who had a realization about the negative impact their farming method was having when they went on a holiday
0: yeah thanks sarah Uh, look i'll paraphrase some of it uh, but robert and caroline run a sheep and cropping a cropping operation in um near place called darken and the the really full-on industrial cropping area sheep cropping area of western australia and Uh, Over two decades ago, their operation was typical of this sort of farming um, based on past clearings, so there's a lot of salt in the landscape in places, uh, and they got rid of this complex echodynamic system that I'm talking about. And they were also part of a leading farming advisory group, which really pushed full-on industrial agriculture. So as as he says, reading here from the book, we got full-on into it, into direct drilling that was drilling straight into the soil based on a lot of herbicide use, glyphosate or Roundup. And it was fantastic, he says. We could do all these great things so quickly. We just got full on into the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, etc. We pushed things hard. But after that, the wheels began falling off and the costs were going up. The weeds were increasing. We were putting more fungicides out. And I just thought, no, this isn't working. What's more, the stock feed we were growing just had nothing in it for our ruminants, for their uh, sheep and cattle. It was like eating cardboard and the soil was getting worse, everything was getting worse, the salt was getting worse, everything was more compacted and it was just crap and we just weren't feeling good about it. And then they started looking, he says, and they discovered some of the new regenerative schools. But then he finishes with this really evocative story. He says that about 15 years ago, just after chemical agriculture had fully ramped up, and I quote him, they used to have a holiday place down on the Walpole River Uh, which drains a lot of the uh, cropping region, all the rivers run into this estuary. And he said we used to catch prawns in the river and catch oysters in the estuary at Whirlpool. We'd go down with a super bag, that's a super phosphate bag, empty one, and we'd just fill it up within half an hour, just mud oysters, and we'd go home and cook them. Then he told me about 15 years ago, just after chemical agriculture had fully ramped up, we went down there for our holidays again. There were no oysters. The whole lot were dead. Every one of them gone, and they've never come back. And that was after a really wet winter when there was just bare ground everywhere and everyone got into growing canola and insecticides, weedicides and all that sort of shit. And the prawns are gone too. In short, as I now describe, (coughs) Rob had described the collapse of an estuarine ecosystem due to upstream poor landscape management, and this occurred in less than 10 to 15 years. It was a sobering lesson in time scales and fragile ecosystems. And then with, because of this experience, Rob concluded it was the final trigger to them changing their approach. And he said, when you sit on that river now and you think of all this crap coming down the river because of what we're doing up here, that's what really gets me. The other farmers don't understand it. They think once it's run down the creek, it's gone, it's finished. But that sort of thing, I realised then that if we get it right here, this is where it starts
2: so it's a very powerful testimony indeed and uh and the entire swing that um that robert and caroline have had speaks to that fifth tenant which is that human social aspect we don't have a great deal of time left but can we speak to that a bit because i think that's one of the 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 big ones that everyone farmer or otherwise can start to shift in supporting regenerative agriculture and 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 better systems
0: no that that is a key question and um as I said before, it's that one square foot of real estate between our ears. It's, it's the big issue, uh, which is why I went back and did a PhD in which this book has really come out of all those stories and experiences. Um, and one of the things I looked at is, is when you're trained in a particular way of thinking, the, the, the paradigm that you adopt or the worldview is incredibly powerful. It's sort of neuron own connections and your peers and everyone you respect – And to start to overthrow that and step outside, it's like changing tribes. And uh, it can be very lonely and challenging. And uh, as I said before, it needed some sort of shock for a lot of these people to change. But I would argue powerfully, um, well, first of all, the the book shows how and why people change through those sort of experiences that we've just related but probably the issue we haven't discussed, and it really overlays the whole book, is that we now know mm. Earth has moved into a whole new geological era called the Anthropocene. And, and I don't think few people realise it makes world wars look like baby events. This is, despite our political uh, leaders being sceptical, where I am at ANU, we've got some of the world leaders in climate and physics and chemistry and uh, frog ecology, bird ecology, landscape ecology, and 95% plus are saying the major earth systems that sustain this living complex globe are under major threat, some of them beyond safe boundaries now and we don't know what's going to happen if they collapse or get to a runaway event. So that's the big context. If ever there's a reason for change, from not just we farmers but from the way urban people demand healthy food uh, because their demand decisions translate whether you foster the industrial system or a healthy alternate agriculture... Uh, I would have thought this is the greatest of all reasons in the entire history of our species to start thinking about changing how we approach life and our worldviews.
2: Indeed.
1: <clears throat> um, for me personally, my favourite part of your book is an anecdote at the start of chapter 15 about what you saw when you were a young hiker in the mountains of New Zealand. Uh, could you please tell that anecdote to the listeners?
0: It's an important instructive one about the European mind that we're sort of talking about hitting the Australian landscape. When I was a young and silly uni student, I did a lot of rock climbing and mountaineering. And one of my early trips to New Zealand, uh, I was walking up the head of the Tasman Glacier with an experienced New Zealand climber. And we were carrying heavy packs and I stopped for a rest. And the ice was all red and I chipped around with the ice axe and said to him rather naively, is this algae or something? And rather aggressively he said, no, that's your bloody Mallee drought of the 1930s. But it wasn't just the Mallee, it was the Wimmera, um, the big drought of that period. It was from Outbroken Hill, the South Australian pastoral country, and we'd actually lost millions upon millions of tonnes of soil that had gone 4,000 kilometres across the Tasman and turned the New Zealand Alps red. That's happened five times... And the lesson of human history is that you destroy your soils civilizations collapse, and at the moment where the loss of soil around the world is accelerating and um i guess it's um that's what really one of the big issues in this book is that um that the lessons of history are very powerful and um, it's time we sort of turn those things around but that really impacted me that experience as you pointed out.
2: Charles thanks so much for your time this evening. Now it was a pleasure coming in uh, both Bushy and Sarah thank you. No worries at all thank you very much Rachel for being our panel beater. Colsey um, off air we just got some details of a return date that Charles will be speaking in Melbourne. Uh, yeah
1: Charles will be speaking in Melbourne 8th and 9th, 8th of December at a food conference. Uh, the details aren't quite confirmed yet but if you check out the Australian Food Sovereignty website you'll be able to find them out.
2: Uh, Thank you very much for listening as per usual we'll see you next Tuesday but until then have all the fun.
0: This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website
2: at rrr.org.au